Well, it was a day that she would never forget. A young journalist had the chance to sit down with Bill Gates, arguably one of the most successful people in the world, and she was on a mission. She wanted to know the secret for how Bill Gates had become so successful, so wealthy. And so when the day came, she went right for the jugular vein. She asked him, Mr. Gates, what is the secret of your success? But to her surprise, he didn't answer her question, at least not at the beginning. Instead, he allegedly handed her a blank check. Now, I'm sure she must have been shocked, but she was even more shocked when he said, look, I want you to fill in whatever amount you want. And the story goes that she actually refused this offer. She politely gave the check back to him, and then she repeated her question. Mr. Gates, I want to know, what is the secret to your success? But Gates insisted that he was serious about the check. And he wanted her to take it and write in whatever amount she wanted. But she refused again. She even tore the check up, and then she proceeded with her question. Mr. Gates, tell me, what is the secret to your success? She was undeterred. So finally, when Mr. Gates saw that he wasn't getting anywhere, he smiled and said, the secret of my success is that I do not miss opportunities like you just did. Now, this was a story on the internet, so who knows how accurate (laughs) this was. But it serves a, a, an interesting, as an il- interesting illustration. Imagine that just for a moment, that you're sitting there with an opportunity. A blank check is offered to you by one of the richest men in the world. These kinds of offers generally have a catch, don't they? Uh, they're always too good to be true. Well, that's at least all offers except one. And today we're going to hear about a genuine blank check offer, if we could call it that. And it's not from some wealthy human. It's from God Himself. It's an offer far better, far more rewarding, far more satisfying than a padded bank account. It's God's promise to give us whatever we ask for from Him. It's as though God hands us His spiritual check and He says, write in it what you want. But there's a catch, too, if we can call it that. In order for us to have confidence that God is going to give us what we ask for, the Scriptures say we must pray in line with what He wants. We're told to ask according to His will. And that's because God has ordained our little prayers as the means that He uses to accomplish His sovereign will. We're going to see that God promises to work through our prayers to preserve and transform His people. To keep them on the path. To produce tremendous fruit in our lives. And it's all from our prayers. So if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. For those of you who don't know, we are studying this letter, almost done with it, in our college ministry. And this passage was so impactful to us that we wanted to share from the overflow um, for you this morning. 1 John 5, and as he's, he's finishing up this letter, John wants this church to understand the significant opportunity they have to affect change in the lives of other people through prayer. He knows that prayer is difficult. He knows that we're tempted to misunderstand prayer or to approach prayer half-heartedly or to minimize the significance of prayer. But his goal at the end of this book is to motivate the church to be a praying people, to intercede confidently for the needs of the saints. And so I'm calling today's message Praying with Confidence. 
praying with confidence. And the text was read uh, by Nathan earlier. And in this paragraph, there's a lot of you know, interesting things, sin unto death, a number of things, we'll talk about those, that. But the, the main theme is prayer and motivation for prayer. And so in our passage today, we're going to see at least five principles about prayer that will motivate us to pray confidently for each other. So John's going to give us, in this text, at least five principles about prayer. And that as we sink our teeth into these principles, these truths, they're going to motivate us to pray confidently, fervently, and effectually for each other. Alright, so number one, the first principle that John gives us in this text, we could say it like this. Confident prayer is fueled by knowing that we have God's ear. Confident prayer is fueled, it's motivated by knowing that we have God's ear, that He hears us. Look with me in verses 13 and 14. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. John says we're going to pray confidently. We need to know that we have God's ear. John wants us to deeply believe that God hears us when we pray. This promise fuels confident prayer. And when we pray, we have to believe it. But how can we know that we're really truly heard when we get on our knees? Bow before the Lord in prayer. I'm sure you've had the experience praying and it feels like your prayers are hitting the ceiling. How can you know? Well, the confidence in this passage, the tone of this passage, the confidence starts actually back in verse 13. And confidence in prayer flows out of our own assurance as we know with certainty that we actually do belong to God. Look in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And flowing out of that, this is the confidence that we have. So John roots our confidence in prayer in our assurance knowing with certainty that we belong to God, that He has forgiven us. So when we know that we belong to God, when we're reconciled to Him, when we know our sins are forgiven, and we are are in a right relationship with the, the triune God, when we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He loves us, and that He's welcomed us into His presence as His children, guess what happens? Boldness in prayer grows. It's like the kid who is sure of his dad's love. He's not scared to come and ask his dad for things, for help. Fearing he'll be rejected. He knows his dad loves him. He knows he is his child. And that's John's point here. Confident prayer for you and I, it begins with deep assurance. And he wrote this letter to accomplish that assurance. And he wants us to know that we, that we know God and that God loves us. And when we do... He says, verse 14, that we'll know, we'll be confident that God really does hear us when we pray. Now, like I said a moment ago, this promise does come with a catch or a caveat. Notice that if we want to have God's ear, we must pray for the things that He Himself wants. So that's our second principle. Confident prayer asks for what God wants. Confident prayer prays along the lines of God's will. Look in verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So notice the hearing is contingent on praying His his will. But what is that? What does He mean? What's He talking about when He's talking about praying for God's will? Well, later on in this passage, and the reason I love this passage so much when it comes to prayer, is that John gives us a concrete example of praying for what God wants, right here in this passage. But generally speaking, he's talking about 
God's will as found in Scripture, what people have called His revealed will or His moral will. When we open our Scriptures, we see precisely what it is that God wants. We know that He wants and has purpose to save His people. We know that He wants to grow His people into His image. We know that He wants to use His people for His mission on earth. We know He wants you to repent of sin. We know He wants you to use your gifts. We know He wants you to trust Him. We could go on and on about the things we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that God wants. You could summarize it by saying that He desires to save and sanctify His people. To save and sanctify His people. That is prayer according to God's will. Praying for those kinds of things. It's what the blank check promise is all about. And these kinds of requests should be at the very heart of our prayer time. At the very heart of our intercessions for one another. Now you're saying, but what about the, those other things that we often pray about? Can we ask God for that too? Well, certainly. This, what John's saying here does not mean that we can't ask God for good things, like recovery from an illness, or for that promotion at work, or nice weather for the weekend. I mean, the, the list goes on. But what we don't have, or we don't have the same guarantees that God will give us those requests. You see that? He can and often does grant those requests, but we don't have any guarantees. He certainly wants us to pray for those requests, but John is simply not giving us a blank check for these things like he is for our requests that are in line with his moral will. Now, if, as I'm talking, you're kind of saying, ah, I wish we had a blank check for everything, you know, like all, anything I ask. Well, if that's rising up in your heart and I get the sentiment, you probably don't understand God's moral will like you think you do. You don't understand the incredible, bottomless goodness of God's will. Not to mention, you probably don't understand how off-base and detrimental some of your desires can be. But God's will, His desires are perfect. It's the most peaceable thing we could possibly want. It brings the most joy to His people. It is the best thing that we could walk in and learn to live by. It is utterly satisfying. And God promises to answer anything you might dare to ask Him along those lines. Notice how open-ended John is. He says, we can ask for anything, anything according to His will. And when we pray for the things that God wants, John says that we can be confident that God will answer that prayer. And that leads us to our third principle here. Confident prayer knows that God will answer. Confident prayer knows, is certain, that God will answer. That God has promised to respond. Again, look in verse 15. If we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. Confident prayer knows that God will answer. That is a staggering promise. He's saying that when we pray God's will, we can know with certainty that God will answer that prayer. And we have to know this when we come to pray. When's the last time you prayed with that kind of confidence? You come to the Lord, you say, Lord, I know that you want to see this believer, my friend, overcome fear. He's ruled by it. I pray that you bring him to repentance. And I am confident that you hear me and that you will answer this prayer.
immediately our hearts are tempted to doubt, aren't we? When we say something like that to the Lord. We think, what if he doesn't answer it? What if it doesn't work? Well, I think when we have what seems to be unanswered prayer, we begin to doubt promises like these. You're tempted to wonder if God hears you or if he cares or if he's just going to accomplish or if he's going to accomplish the thing you're praying for or if he's just going to do whatever he wants anyway, his sovereign will and what am I what do we even pray? Do my prayers really matter? These are all lies that we are susceptible to when prayer seems unanswered. So, that means we need to troubleshoot this, right? We need to troubleshoot what I'm calling seemingly unanswered prayer. When God doesn't seem to be giving us what we're asking for. So, I've got a few questions that we want to kind of, kind of work through here when it seems like the Lord's not hearing us. The first one's obvious. Are you praying according to His will? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that what you're asking for is according to His revealed will? Can you point to chapter and verse? Sometimes we may be asking for things that God has not promised to provide. You college students, for a good grade on your exam. You young mothers, that your infant would sleep through the night. When the Lord says no, or not yet, because He has a different and better plan, we grow discouraged. We begin to wonder, does, is he, does He hear us? But you need to ask yourself, are you praying for those things that God has promised to answer? Are you praying according to His will? And let's say, okay, you determine that you are praying His will in a particular area. Yes, I know this is... This is God's will specifically. Ask yourself, are you living in unrepentant sin? Are you living in a pattern of rebellion against the Lord that you're praying to? You see, if we were studying this letter, we would know that John has already told us that there is a direct connection between our godliness on the one hand and answered prayer on the other hand. Listen to chapter 3, verse 22. Listen for why God answers prayer. He says, chapter 3, verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because, here it is, we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. So why does God answer our prayers according to that verse? Because we're learning to obey. Right? In other words, we're not living in patterned rebellion against the Christ that we're praying to. Listen, if you're living in unrepentant lust, you're living in patterns of anxiety they are going unacknowledged. You're living in repetitive outbursts of anger and you are not dealing with that. If you're blame-shifting and you're not taking responsibility for sin, the Lord will not hear you as a believer. If you think, wow, that sounds kind of harsh. Well, Peter says the same thing for husbands in 1 Peter 3.7. He gives a warning there, saying if husbands are inattentive to the needs of their wives, they live with them, they're not, implication, if they're living with them in a way that's not according to knowledge, then God will not hear them when they pray. Their prayers will be hindered, it says. 1 Peter 3, 7. Those are commands to believing husbands. So if you're refusing to repent in an area, you can know that your prayers will not be as effective or as effectual as they could be. But let's say you are praying according to His will, and although you're not perfect, there's no flagrant sin in your life that you're ignoring, and that's really the issue there. Let's say those, you've met those first two criteria. Consider this. Are you looking for God to answer according to your timetable? Or maybe according to your expectations? Sometimes we want God to answer according to our timetable. 
and our agenda or the way that we think that it should go, the way we think his answers should be worked out. So what do I mean? Well, sometimes we pray and we expect God to answer in the very moment, right? So we pick up our first Peter 3 for the husbands, right? The wife prays, Lord, please help my husband listen better. You know, in the moment. Sometimes he does. Sometimes the Lord grants that request in that moment. But oftentimes, answer to prayer comes later. And it comes in conjunction with other things. Like discipleship, renewing your mind, church involvement, maybe for that inattentive husband, a rebuke from a friend. So, it might not be according to our timetable. Prayer, answer to prayer often comes later, maybe in conjunction with some other things. But also, sometimes answers to prayer come in unexpected ways. Ways that don't meet our expectations or how we're envisioning that they're going to be answered. It's like the person who's praying for patience. We know how that goes, right? <laughs> All of a sudden, some difficulty comes into your life may take some time for you to connect the dots that God brought that circumstance into your life, that difficult person, to grow the beautiful, satisfying fruit of Christ-like patience in your life. So it's uh, answered prayer, not according to our expectations. Well, whatever the case, as God's children, we have to upend our doubts when we hear the promise that God will certainly answer the prayers that we pray. Those prayers that are in line with His will. God says we have His ear. And that having His ear means we have what we request in some form or another. And that's extremely motivating when it comes to prayer, isn't it? Now, one of the things I love about this passage is how John gives us a specific scenario he wants us to pray for. A scenario that happens often in the church. What is it? When you see a fellow believer in sin. And that leads to our fourth principle. We could say it like this. Confident prayer is life giving for erring church members. For those members are in sin, your intercessions for them is God's channel to restore life. Confident prayer is life-giving for church members who are in sin, who are in error. Look in verse 16. John writes, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So John does not leave us in the abstract, does he? He gives us a scenario and he says, I want you to pray for that. Pray for that thing right there. The scenario is anytime we see a fellow church member committing sin. That's when we intercede. Because we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, it is God's will that that brother or sister turn from that sin, that they repent and they grow. Right? Now, I know this verse and the ones after it, uh, they raise a lot of questions. So I'm going to ask and answer some, some questions here as we, as we work through this verse in particular. Let's take a closer look at what John's saying here. Initially, who is he commanding to pray? Notice in the text. Who's he commanding in the, in the text here to pray? Is it the pastors only? It's not. John says, if anyone sees a brother in sin. If anyone sees a brother in sin, let him ask. That means every single one of us is responsible for this kind of intercessory prayer. This prayer ministry. I think lots of times we think intercessory prayer, these are for the pastors, these are for the really godly people in the church, these are for the counseling ministry. And yes, all that is true. But according to this text, 
Intercessory prayer is the job of every single one of us. It's for anyone. The only condition is you're seeing a brother or sister in sin. (laughs) That means that every one of us plays a vital role in this intercessory prayer, in praying others to maturity. Next question. Who is being prayed for? Notice, who's being prayed for? John says, it's a brother. A brother. And in this context, what he means is a fellow believer. A fellow believer. And in particular, a fellow believer of the same church. Believers that are in the assembly. Now you're saying, okay, where are you getting that from? Well, you have to be able to see them in sin. This isn't for the universal church. Uh, but we see each other, right? We, we're regularly in fellowship with, with one another. So we're not just responsible to intercede generally for all believers, although that's a good thing, but we are responsible to intercede particularly for each other here at TBC. Specifically for our fellow members of our Sunday school classes and small groups. And that's the context of who's being prayed for. But, next question, what is the specific situation that John is telling us to pray for? And he says, it's when a fellow church member is in sin. Or, here's how John puts it. I'll give you a literal translation. When a brother is sinning a sin, not unto death. Now, on the surface, that is a highly unusual way to talk about our sin as believers. Sinning a sin, not unto death. But as odd as it sounds to our ears, it's actually an incredibly encouraging way to frame up the sin of believers. John is saying that from God's perspective, a sin of a genuine believer is a sin not unto death. Meaning, not unto eternal death and damnation. And you're probably thinking like, oh, okay, Clay, like I, I, I know that, right? I, I know that sin doesn't lead to my eternal death. I'm forgiven in Christ. Jesus has taken my punishment for sin. And that is very true and a glorious reality. But we have to keep in mind that sin is always deadly. Sin doesn't stop being deadly just because we're Christians and we're forgiven. Sin doesn't just cease being the poison that it is when we come to faith in Christ. And when we sin as a believer, we still drink the poison in some sense. When we rebel against our Savior, it's as though we momentarily turn away from our experience of life. Now don't misunderstand me or John. He is not saying that we lose our possession of eternal life. That's been clear. That's what he's been establishing this entire letter, that believers have eternal life. He's not saying we lose our possession of eternal life, but he is saying that our experience of that life is diminished until we repent. What happens after you yell at your kids? What happens after you lie to your boss? What happens after you click on that image? Guilt sets in. Your heart condemns you. You are defiled and you know it. And in those moments, it's almost as if you begin to experience death. Now, if this is an interesting concept to you, I know it was for me when I was studying this. I was looking at this, and how, how does God grant life to a believer who already has life? What's he talking about? What helped me was thinking back through King David's experience. He actually wrote about this sort of death-like symptoms that occurred to him as he hid his sin. After he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then murdered her husband. He didn't immediately own up to it. Instead, he writes in Psalm 32, 
that he kept silent about it for a time. Meaning he didn't confess it. Tried to hide. And in that psalm, Psalm 32, David describes himself as experiencing death-like symptoms as a result of hiding his sin. He says his bones wasted away. He says his strength dried up. If you fast forward to another psalm, Psalm 38, he describes another instance that he turned away from the Lord and what he experienced. Listen to this language. This is all metaphorical, okay? He says, arrows sunk into him. There was no soundness in his flesh, no health in his bones. His metaphorical wounds, they stunk and they festered. His sides were filled with burning. He was feeble and crushed. His heart throbbed. His strength failed him. And the light of his eyes had gone from him. Why? All because, that psalm says, of his sin. So in a sense, to put it in John's terms, the believing David had begun to experience death-like symptoms in a spiritual sense because he had turned from his experience of life. It didn't make him an unbeliever, but he had willingly forfeited his experience of the life of God in its abundance via his sin. And John is telling us here in our text that when our fellow church members are sinning, even though it doesn't ultimately lead to eternal death, it's not unto death, they are forfeiting their experience of life in that very moment. Very important to observe. Because notice, finally, last question. What does God promise to do for the sinning believer when we pray? Look at what the text says. He promises to restore life to that very brother. Look in verse 16. He shall ask, that's you and I, meaning we shall intercede. He shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Meaning he's talking about believers. So he's saying he gives life in response to our prayers. What does that mean? Well, it's exactly what we were just saying. John is telling us that God, in response to our prayer, will restore the experience of life to our erring brother or sister. Now you might be thinking, now wait a minute. I thought that this life is restored when the errant believer confesses and repents his sin. Doesn't 1 John 1.9 tell us that? Yes, it does. John has already told us in this very letter that if we honestly confess our sins in humble repentance, that we will be thoroughly forgiven and cleansed. You know the promise? But here, the end of the book, he says the restoration comes through our intercessions, through our prayers. So, which is it? Through confession? Through praying? Well, to both end. I think we could bring both of these texts together and say it like this. John is saying that God works through our intercessions to bring others to repentance and to restore to that person the experience of life. Does that make sense? God works through our prayers to bring others to repentance and then as they repent, He restores, opens the channels of His experience of the life that He's already been given. And in fact, don't miss this. God promises to do this in response to your prayers. In response to your intercessions for others in the body. Let that sink in for a second. God has set things up in such a way that you and I can pray each other into repentance. 
When this truth starts to settle in to your heart, to my heart, when it starts to settle down into the recesses of our convictions, we're going to see a number of things start to happen. We're going to be encouraged. Encouraged to pray. Incentivized to pray. If you're a newer believer, or even one who feels a little bit shaky when it comes to counseling other people, don't we all? This promise should deeply encourage you. Even if you're not quite sure how to disciple or counsel another believer out of something like anxiety, guess what you can do? You can pray them into repentance and into maturity with the very confidence of God in your sails. God has promised to answer you. It might take a while. There might be some fits and starts. But He's promised to answer these intercessions for genuine believers. Because that anxiety is not a sin unto death. It won't win the final victory over His sheep. And that is tremendously encouraging and incentivizing to pray. So it's encouraging, yeah, but it's also sobering, isn't it? This is a sobering truth when we meditate upon it. If God wants us to pray others into repenting, if He set it up that way, then in some sense, in some sense, we are at least partly responsible for the growth of others through our prayers. And it's sobering because do you realize if you fail to pray for those in sin, they may not be as Christ-like as they could be. Now, if you're the one in sin, you can't just point to this text and blame other people's lack of prayer for you for your lack of repentance. It's not the way this passage works. This is an incentive to us to intercede. God's appointed means to bring believers to repentance is through the prayers of His people. It doesn't mean we don't lovingly confront. It doesn't mean we don't counsel people or other things like that. We certainly do. God's given us commands in those areas as well. But what John is drawing out here is the power of intercession. Our prayers for others are directly linked to their experience and growth. To their experience of life, to their repentance. And that is a sobering reality. So it's encouraging, sobering, but it's also humbling. It's humbling too. It's humbling to pray others to repentance. Because we are reminded that it's God who grants repentance every time. It's not our skill. It's not our penetrating questions. It's not our renewed minds and and acumen. It's God. See, especially as a pastor, when I hear someone's caught in sin or they're struggling or maybe they reach out, my first instinct is to try to set up a meeting, get a phone call, to try to help them get into God's Word and work through it. Just being honest, it's my first instinct when I was studying this passage. I was convicted. And it's not that those things are bad. Those things are means, right? That people need. But it is humbling to just get on my knees and pray in secret and to see the Lord work repentance in a soul without one word from my lips. So it's humbling to pray people to repentance, but it's also humbling to be on the receiving end of people's prayers for repentance. Or to say it like this, it's humbling to be prayed into repenting. Uh, I had this experience just last week. The Lord brought an irritating circumstance into my life, and I responded in anger in front of a few brothers right here in this church. Later that morning, I was convicted, I repented and sought their forgiveness. And I was texting one of these brothers, and um, here's what he said. 
He said, yeah, I saw you respond in that way, and as soon as I saw you respond in frustration, I was praying for you. And according to this passage, the Lord answered his, answered his prayer for me. He brought conviction. He brought repentance into my heart. And that's humbling and encouraging at the same time, isn't it? And I told that guy, I said, thank you for praying me to repentance. Because we had just been studying this text together. Now, I realize it's been a, a long point. Uh, this is the longest point in the message. So let's just take a step back for a second, kind of assimilate this principle, and try to apply it. Don't worry, the application is pretty straightforward. If we're going to pray like this, and even see where our our brothers and sisters are struggling in sin, we've got to really get to know people, don't we? We have to get to know people intentionally. We can't pray for things we don't know about. So ask yourself, are you in close enough relationships with people to see their struggles so that you can intercede? Do others know you well enough to be able to pray for you? To see when you are in sin, when you are sinning a sin, not unto death. As you get to know folks, be intentional in those relationships by asking how you might be praying for their growth. That's an important little tagline. It's not wrong to pray for physical healing, but saying, how can I pray for your growth? Narrows the focus to God's moral will. We've got to get to know people intentionally so we can ask those questions. And when we do start seeing these patterns, or maybe even when they're, they're confessed to us, we have to train ourselves to start praying first before we do anything else. We need to train ourselves to pray first for this to be our sort of instinctual reaction. So what do you do when you see a friend, a fellow believer here at at TBC, when you see them caught in sin? Is your first thought to tell your family about what you've seen? Maybe to gossip to a friend about what you've seen? Or maybe you point fingers or, or think, I'm glad I'm not like that person. More often than not, though, here's what I think happens a lot. We just sort of ignore it. We just kind of go about our business, and we sort of subtly think, it's not really my responsibility, that's their life. Just kind of turn a blind eye, and we think, yeah, that's not, not my problem. But John says here, our first response, the impulse of our hearts ought to be to bring them before God. It is our problem. The impulse of our hearts should be to intercede, asking Him for their repentance and growth. So, train yourself to pray. First. But how do you train yourself to pray impulsively? By having regular, habitual time set aside for prayer. So if you don't already, you need to set aside some time to pray. Do you have times in your week to actually pray? Now, I'm not talking about intentions to pray. I know how that goes. <laughs> I'm talking about actual prayer time. Where you're before the Lord and you're interceding for others. If, someone, if somebody were to, to grab your calendar, grab your planner, your outlook, whatever you use, and they were to inventory your last week of your life, and let's pretend that your calendar actually reflected what you did. Like it, the times you spent on things. How much would there be prayer there? Would there be any actual praying that took place? How much of it actually took place? What did you pray for? Who did you pray for? Now that's convicting, I'm sure, for us all. I mean, we can always pray more. These sermons on prayer are kind of by default convicting, aren't they? And just to encourage you, prayer is, in my opinion, one of the most challenging spiritual disciplines. 
In particular, when I'm talking about intercessory prayer. But the Bible tells us to devote ourselves to prayer. And that devotion to prayer is helpful language because it means that we have to make a deliberate decision to pray. We need to plan to pray, to schedule it even. I know that sounds unspiritual. But if intercession really is this important, it really does have that kind of effectual power, that should be an agenda item on our daily to-do list. And it should be at the top of the list. So if you don't have a time set aside, put one down and begin sticking to it. Set aside time to pray. And when you pray, my encouragement would be to pray specifically. Pray specifically. Know whom you're praying for. And know what area of maturity that you're asking God to grow that person in. Now, I know this is, can be more challenging because it means we need a system to keep up with things. So go find someone that's doing this well and just mimic their system. If we ask God to just sort of generically bless someone, that's fine. You know, Lord bless them. But asking them to help them repent of sinful fear and grow in humble and joyful trust in this particular fearful situation at work, that's even better, right? Right? Then we can begin to know, wow, he's beginning to answer this prayer. We see fruit. So like, again, just find people who are doing this well and learn from them to pray specifically. Alright, so even though prayer is challenging, when we sink our teeth, teeth, we sink our teeth, there we go, into these principles, and we really get a hold of them, Especially this fourth principle, that prayer is life-giving. We're going to have incredible motivation to set aside time to pray. So if we just think, kind of think of prayer as a duty, and it is, but if we just think of prayer as a duty and we're not understanding all that God intends to accomplish through prayer, we're going to be lacking the, the wind in our sails to, to really get after prayer. So these are some incredible motivations. But there's a fifth and final principle that we can draw out of this text about confident prayer. And we could say it like this. Confident prayer knows its limits. Confident prayer knows its limits. It knows what God has promised, and it knows what God has not promised. It knows what God has guaranteed to answer, and what God may answer. Confident prayer knows its limits. And that's where John lands here in the end of verse 16. He says, There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is is sin that does not lead to death. So again, this passage, it's predominantly concerned with the sin not unto death. You even see how he comes back to that in verse 17. You see that? The sin of believers. The sin of not unto death. But he almost anticipates this other question that will, that will arise. The sin unto death. What about that? Now I know that that raises a lot of questions. What is that sin unto death? Is he telling us not to pray for those people who are sinning sins unto death? But I don't want you to miss the overall point John's making in this passage. John is saying that with real genuine believers... We can be confident that God will use our prayers for their growth. But, we cannot have that same level of confidence toward those who are sinning unto death. So, what I'm saying here is confident prayer knows its limits. So let's address, as we kind of wrap up this morning, let's address two of these questions, big questions that we have in this verse. First, What is John talking about when he says there's a sin that leads unto death? Now let me be the first to tell you that this phrase, and particularly interpreting this phrase, it is not easy. There's several good views that could be argued, and it's challenging because John doesn't give us a lot to go off of right here in this passage. He gives us some clues, but he doesn't give give us a ton to go off of. 
he often in this letter will speak in sort of a shorthand because he knows his audience understands what he's saying and he's ministered to these people uh, for a long time. But we're not in that same scenario. So the interpre- interpreting a phrase like this becomes a bit more challenging. And so just for the sake of time, I'm going to give you what I think is the most compelling view in this context. It appears to me that the sin leading to death, the sin unto death, is the opposite of the sin that does not lead to death. Which we said there, it was the sin of believers. right? The sin that doesn't lead to eternal death. So then if the converse is true, he would be, John would be referring to a sin that leads to eternal death. Which is really any unrepentant sin of the unbeliever. It's any sin of one outside of Christ leads to eternal damnation. And in particular in 1 John is the sin of the false teachers, the antichrists, who are refusing to repent, who are hardening themselves, who hate the brothers, who contradict the apostles' teaching, and they're sinning toward death, unto death, because it's propelling them toward eternal death. I think that's the best view of this little phrase, the sin unto death. Now that brings us to our second question, probably more pressing, if that's, if that's the right view. Is John telling us not to pray for them? Not to pray for the sin of unbelievers? Well, at first glance, at the end of verse 16, he seems to say that. He says, I do not say, this is how the ESV translates it, I do not say that one should pray for that. Like, don't pray for it. Sounds like he's giving us an instruction not to pray. And in the Bible, God has, at certain times, told people, in particular, I'm thinking about Jeremiah, has told Jeremiah not to pray for the nation of Israel because they had, they had reached a point of no return. They had sinned to the point, they had hardened themselves to the point that God said, don't even intercede because I won't answer your intercession. So this is a biblical category. But is this what John is saying here? I don't think so. Since I take the sin unto death as the sin of unbelievers generally, I don't think John is forbidding prayer for them. I don't think he's forbidding it. I think what John is saying is that we don't have the same promise attached to our prayers for unbelievers like we do for the prayers that we have for believers. Let me flesh this out a little bit more. We could translate this phrase a bit more woodenly, and it would, it would go like this. There is a sin unto death, and I'm not speaking about that. Right? There's a sin unto death. I'm not speaking about that in order that you should ask. In other words, he's anticipating that that they're thinking about, what about these? Are there the same guarantees on the sins of unbelievers, these sins unto eternal death that we have for for the sins of believers? Because John has just commanded us to pray expectantly and confidently for those things, the the sins of believers, the sin not unto death. And he says that we should expect that God will answer that positively. And John knows that we might be tempted to apply that same sort of blank check to unbelievers. But John also knows that salvation belongs to the Lord alone and that He saves whom He wills. We are free to ask and plead with God for the salvation of our friends and our family outside of Christ. We ought to do this. We're commanded to do this. But we must entrust whatever outcome He decides to His good and merciful will. God often does answer our prayers for unbelievers. And when we pray, we should even be hopeful that He will answer our prayers for unbelievers. But we don't have the same guarantee like we do when we pray God's will for believers. I think that's John's point in the context here in this passage. And just to be clear, when it comes to praying for unbelievers, Jesus commands us to do that. He tells us to even pray for our enemies in Matthew 5.44. He 
He models this for us as He asks God to forgive those who crucified Him when He's hanging on the cross in Luke 23-34. Paul models this same heart too when he describes how he prays for the hardened Jewish unbelievers. Listen to this. He prays, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Then he goes on in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So Paul clearly has agonizing, heartfelt desire for the salvation of his unbelieving Jewish countrymen. And he is agonizing in prayer before God for their conversion. But this same Paul knows that salvation is God's sovereign prerogative alone. In those same chapters, chapters 9 through 11, where these statements are found, in those same chapters, Paul says that God is completely just in his dealings with sinful men. God is completely free to show mercy to whom He decides to show mercy to. Romans 9, 14-18. So we see this very phenomenon modeled in the New Testament. This fervent intercession for unbelievers on the one hand, and yet not presuming on the outcome or accusing God of injustice if He chooses not to answer for His own good Righteous and holy purposes. God is perfectly good and wise. And we can trust Him in all His ways. And specifically in our intercessions for unbelievers. But John's point here is not for us to get all tangled up in these things. He's simply saying that confident prayer is confident only about the outcomes that God has promised. Or we could say it differently. Confident prayer knows its limits. It knows its limits. It still prays. It still hopes. But it knows its limits. It knows where the guarantee line is drawn. So, these are five principles that are going to motivate us to pray. And these principles, if we, if we believe them, will, will light a fire in us to get after intercession. If these principles become convictional for us, we will fight to pray. We'll overcome prayerlessness. And as we do, as we become more diligent, we will taste the sweet fruit right here in our ministry. We will continue to see our fellow church members overcoming sin and temptation and the more we pray, to a greater degree. We'll see our Sunday school classes and small groups living glorious and fruitful lives for Christ. We'll likely even see others come to faith in Christ for the first time. Why is that? It's all because we devoted ourselves to prayer. And because we asked specifically for the things that are according to God's will. Beloved, He has given us a blank check. So let's pray with confidence. Amen? Father, it does astound us to think that we have Your ear. Each time we utter words to You, You say that You are listening attentively and that You are ready to answer. It astounds us even further to to hear this incredible promise from John that if we pray anything according to your will, we have the request that we've asked for. And Father, you are delighted when we ask you for the things that please you. It brings you tremendous glory to produce fruit through our prayers. Thank you for the millions of prayers you have already answered from our people over the years. Thank you for the tremendous fruit that you're currently bearing among us because of those very intercessions. But it's hard to hear a message on prayer and not be convicted at some level. 
So I ask that your word this morning, that it would be the needed encouragement for your people. That it would be the wind in our sails today, motivating us to intercede more faithfully and fervently. We pray in Christ's name.